0: Hi, welcome to the New Covenant Presbyterian Church Sermon Podcast, a congregation of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the OPC, in the San Francisco Bay Area. Amen. Well, if you would, please turn in your Bibles to Micah chapter 6. And Micah chapter 6, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 8 this evening. In Micah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Hear now the reading of God's holy word. Hear now what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, O you mountains, the Lord's complaint, and you strong foundations of the earth, for the Lord has a complaint against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you, and how have I wearied you? Testify against me, for I brought you up from the land of Egypt. I redeemed you from the house of bondage, and I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember now what Balak king of Moab counseled, and what Balaam the son of Beor answered him, from Acacia Grove to Gilgal, that you may know the righteousness of the Lord." With what shall I come before the Lord, and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? With the Lord, Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly? to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Amen. Thus far, the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's go before our Lord once again in prayer. Father, how we do pray that you would open up our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word. Lord, we are very conscious of our weakness here, that we are in desperate need of your Spirit, that if you do not help us, that we will go astray. We will not be able to receive your word well, Lord, that on account of the darkness of our minds and the darkness of our hearts. And so, Lord, we do pray that you would open up our eyes and as we do move to another passage where the sins of the people of God are, are put forward and the requirements which you require of us. Lord, we even more ask that you would humble us and enable us to see that you have been good to us, even if we are tempted sometimes not to acknowledge it. We pray that you would remove this far from us for the sake of the praise of your name. And we ask it in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Sometimes in this life, people fight for litigation even though they know they are in the wrong or even though it's obvious that they are in the wrong. Perhaps they don't know it. There can be a blindness. People say they'll take others to court and yet it's quite obvious that they have no case whatsoever. There very often is a tendency in humans and people to overstate their own case, their own righteous position, and to understate that of their the person that they are against. And this also happens within the church. There was uh, a story that I heard of a discipline case where this this particular person was just so clearly and obviously in the wrong and they were threatening to appeal it all the way up to the GA. And the the crazy thing is you just you just have to ask some people like that, I mean, do you really want everybody to know What's happening? Do you really want it to be that public that the entire denomination is going to hear of what you've done? And it's so obvious that there may have been partially things to blame that others have done, but you know it's going to be quite embarrassing for you if you bring this all the way into that kind of a public situation. And yet, we find there is often a similar temptation. We hear those sorts of things and we think, how could anyone do that? But yet, there is a similar temptation that we face And what's even worse, sometimes we face this temptation with respect to God. This is often uh, the case. People will complain against God for the ways in which God has mistreated them. And yet, if God were to be in a courtroom setting with us, he would be vindicated every single time. Every single time. We vastly overstate our own position against him, and we vastly understate all the things which he has done. Now, this is the kind of scene that Micah is describing in Micah chapter 6 verses 1 through 8. This is a courtroom scene where God is on the one side and his people are on the other, and he brings his case against them, though they appear to think that they themselves are in the right. Now, remember, As I had alluded to in in my prayer, remember where we are in the book of Micah. We've just finished the second cycle. Now, just for a quick review, there are three cycles of sin and salvation in the book of Micah, chapters 1 and 2, chapters 3 to 5, and then chapters 6 and 7. We've just finished chapter 5 last week, so now Micah will move again to speak of the sins of his people. Now, in each of these cycles... There is, it, they always begin with this call for the people to hear or for someone to hear. So at the beginning of chapter 1, hear this as there is a this something brought against you. And then in chapter 3, hear this, you rulers. And then again here in chapter 6, hear. There is a summons to hear what God has said. And in this particular passage, to hear the indictment which God has brought against against his people for their unfaithfulness to him. And what we see from the result of this courtroom setting is this, that in light of what God has done for you in Christ, in light of what he's done for you, whatever he's required of you, it's really light and easy. In light of what he's done for you, whatever he would require of you is light and easy. There is no case that we have to complain that what he requires of us is not fair. And so we'll look at this passage in three headings. First in verses 1 to 2, we'll see the way in which God brings his people to court. Then in verses 3 to 5, God lays before the people what he has done for them. So God's side, what he has done. And then in verses 6 through 8, what he's required of his people. So there's what God has done on the one hand. And then there is what he's required. And what we'll see is that God has done very much for his people. And he has, in fact, required very, very little, very simple things from us, which ought to be easy, but yet are made more difficult because of our sin and the hardness of our hearts. So look again with me at verses 1 and 2 as we consider the courtroom scene, the way God brings his people to court, so to speak. Now, here at the very beginning you'll see that God calls upon the mountains. He says, Arise, hear now what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear your voice. Now, why is it that there is this language? Why is God calling these inanimate objects in order to hear this case, which he's going to bring against his people? Why does he do that? There are, I think, a couple of things that are going on. First, this is similar to language which Moses uses in Deuteronomy chapter 32, which was a song that Moses had taught to the people. And it was to be a reminder against the people when they went astray and sinned against the Lord. They were to always remember this song so that it would be a testimony against them. And at the beginning of that song, God says, God calls heaven and earth to bear witness against his people. That is to say, all of creation can see who's in the right. They, they can all bear witness. And here, particularly, the focus is on the hills and the mountains. And not just the hills and the mountains. Notice the way that they're described. The particular emphasis is on the permanence of the mountains. Hear, O mountains, the complaints of the Lord. You strong foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a complaint against his people, and he will contend with Israel. They are at the foundations of the earth. If you look around, what, is, what can be more permanent in this world than a mountain? They simply stand tall and majestic and there's nothing that can bring the mountain down. They have always been there permanently to bear witness to the things of this world. And God says, you who have always been here, bear witness now to what I have brought against my people. What, what I'm bringing against them, the indictment that I have against them. Now, why would there be this language of a public trial? Why would God bring this this sort of complaint against his people? Well, very clearly, God has been wronged. The people have broken faith with him, and here is a public vindication of God, as I mentioned in the beginning. If there is a public court case... Where anyone would bring anything against God, in every single case, it is God who will be vindicated. Everything that he does is right and just. Very often, there are people who will make complaints against God, and perhaps the language won't be so bold as to say, you know, let let me bring my complaint against God. I know that I will be proved right in that case. Now, that is language that Job uses, if you remember Job. He does say that. And on that point, he was, he was wrong. He was wrong to do that as God uh, rebukes him at the end of that particular book. But there are very oftentimes people who will complain against God. God has not treated me fairly. Look at all the things which I have done for God. I have been faithful to him. And now look at the way that God has returned against me evil for the good that I have done to him. Perhaps it's some sort of, of trial, uh, suffering, persecution you know, whatever. You've not received good things in this life that you think you ought to have. There is something in this life that, and it may be very legitimately making your life difficult for one reason or another, and there can be this temptation to complain. And in any case, in any case where there is a complaint made against what God has done, you have to understand if you were to be, if you were to consider God's side, and if anyone were to, in every single case it would be found that God was in the right. It's something that's very difficult for us in terms just because of our sinful human nature to consider the merits of another side, to consider the merits of the other person. We very often can think, you know, I'm in the right and we're only considering it from our own perspective and it's very easy for us to downplay what another has done and sadly, this is often the case with us in terms of our relationship with God. And this is what happens every time there is a complaint made against him. And so God says, okay, let's have that public trial. Let's bring it out before all to see, all of creation. Let them see what I have done and then what I have required of you. And we'll see who is in the right. And so this begins in verses 3 through 5. As God puts before the people what he has done for them. He starts out in verse 3, Oh my people! What have I done to you? And how have I wearied you? Testify against me. Say it. Whatever whatever it is that I have done to weary you. Now, the main way that God defends his his own actions is by going back to the history of redemption. Remember what it is that I have done for you in the past. Now, this is very important. Sometimes we can lose sight of what God has done for us because we focus only on negative circumstances in our own lives and we forget that really the foundation for what God has done for us has already been accomplished in the sending of his son on our behalf there has been an act that has happened that vindicates God in such a way that he is now really above even being able to be blamed because of what he has done if there's something that's happened in our lives and yet he's done that other thing he now cannot be blamed and so this is the way that that God puts His own side forth. He says, "I brought you up from the land of Egypt. I redeemed you from the house of bondage, and I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam." O oh, my people, remember how what? Remember now what Balak, king of ba- of Moab, counselled, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him from Acacia Grover, or that's that is in the, in the original from Shittim, a, a particular place, to Gilgal. That you may know the righteousness of the Lord. Remember what I have done for you in the Exodus. That's the sum of it. Remember what I have done for you in redeeming you from Pharaoh and his army, from bringing you out of the land of Egypt and bringing you finally into the promised land. The Exodus in the Old Testament was the greatest act of redemption that occurred in the entire history of the people of God. And it's always held up in Scripture that way. It is the act of redemption in the Old Testament. Par excellence. There's none that was greater in the Old Testament. We see that from here. If God were to say one thing that he's done for the people of God, he goes to the Exodus. Now, this is interesting because Micah was writing about 700 years after the events, even more than 700 years after the events that took place of bringing God bringing his people out of Egypt, and yet this was the single event that he goes back to. Even Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 4, when he's going, when He's rehearsing all these events, and he speaks of what has happened, he says, Never, ever in the history of man has it even been conceived that a God would take a nation from within another nation with strong hands, and in outstretched arms, redeeming them from that nation with great signs and wonders, which he did against the people of Egypt, as you saw he did for you. This was the great act of redemption. And so Moses goes, and Micah goes through the entire thing. God begins with how he brought them up out of the land of Egypt. He did not just do that, but he also sent great leaders to lead the people through the wilderness, to be with them, to guide them, to direct them. Those were Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Then, as he's leading them through the desert, there were were, uh, many people who tried to fight against them. God fought for his people. When those nations saw that they could not overcome the people of God, Balak, the king of Moab, went to Balaam and tried to have the people of God cursed. That's what it's referring to here. Remember what Balak, king of Moab, counseled, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him? Balak tried to get Balaam to curse the people of God, and yet God turned that curse into a blessing. Four times he did that and preserved his people. And then he brought them into the promised land. This is what's being referred to. Uh, it's a little enigmatic, but this is what's being referred to in the, at the end of verse 5 from Acacia Grove or from Shittim to Gilgal. Shittim was the last place of encampment in the wilderness on the east side of the Jordan before the people crossed over into the promised land. Gilgal was the very first place in the land. From Shittim to Gilgal, I have brought you from the wilderness into the promised land that you might know the righteousness of the Lord. I brought you out at the beginning. I redeemed you. I led you all the way through. I kept you from being cursed, and I brought you into the land that I promised to give to your forefathers so that at the end of that time, Joshua could say at the end of his life to the people as they're they're in the promised land, think back, Not one of the good things which God has promised to you have failed. Not one of them have fallen to the ground. Every single one of them has come to pass. This, he says, God says, is what I have done for you. I have redeemed you so that you would be my precious people, that I would be your God and you would be my people. Now, that is the defense which God gives on behalf of himself in a day 700 years before the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That act of the Exodus, though it was the greatest of the Old Testament, pales in comparison to what God has done for you by sending his Son to bear the weight of your sins. It pales in comparison. Now, regularly the prophets compare these two events the exodus versus what we could say the, the new exodus is, the act of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jeremiah three times prophesies, saying there are, there's coming a day when people will no longer remember the exodus. They won't even think about it. It'll be far from their minds because they won't say any longer, God, the God who brought up our fathers from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery— They will instead say, God, our God who gathered us from the furthest corners of the world and brought us in to be a people, from the, the furthest corners where he had scattered them, the new exodus, which would happen under great David's greater son. They will completely forget the old exodus in light of the new. And think then what God has done for you before there ever comes a complaint on your lips. Think what God has done for you. What it would be like if God were to lay his case before you. He gave his only son for you. He gave his only son. There is nothing he could have given that would cost him more than his own son, and he gave it. And that was to win a salvation which could not be any greater than the one that you have. And it was done for a people that could not be more undeserving as the people that that he he gave his son to save sinned against him constantly, sinned against the almighty, eternal, everlasting God, the God of glory. And even when he sent his son, those whom he sent his son for crucified him, completely rejecting him. Now, if this is what God has done for you, how could you bring a complaint against him? If someone were to give their son for you today— Could you then think that that person does not have your best interests in mind? Wouldn't, wouldn't just that single act, if someone were to give their son for you and it would, and it led to you living instead of dying, would not that single act show you that this person is on your side and is willing to do anything for you? What would it take for you then to think that that person has wronged you? What, what, what could they possibly have done to you? And you see, brothers and sisters, this is the case. This is why, with his people, if there is ever a public trial, every single time, God is the one who will be vindicated. He is the one who has given up everything for the sake of your salvation. Now, you might, you might, uh, if you know anything of various history, uh, members of church history, people who have given up great things for God, you might, um, be tempted to be amazed and awed when you read stories of people who are willing to be burned for the sake of the Lord or to be willing to be, you know, killed in various ways who did this without even a thought to their own safety and life. You might think, how is it that people could be willing to give up so much for the Lord, to sacrifice so much? You think of, of missionaries who have gone to places where, you know, there have been cannibals and many of them have died. Why was it that they were willing to give up so much for the Lord? And what is it that you could know about their attitude that would help you to be able to sacrifice things for the Lord? Well, I think the thing that they understood, that all of them understood, is that really what they were doing was actually not very much. It was not, it was really nothing compared to what God had done for them. That's, I think, the consistent thread through all of those actions in church history. This is what... Say, um, Polycarp, one of the, the martyrs in the second century said, he's brought before the Romans. They're going to kill him. They do end up killing him. And he's asked to renounce Christ in front of all these people. He says, look, you're an old man. He was 86 years old. You're an old man. Just, just renounce Christ. Just, just recant and you can go free. We don't really want to hurt you, Polycarp. Just, just deny your Lord. And he says, for 86 years I have served him. And he has done me no wrong. How can I deny my Lord who bought me? I just I just can't do it. God's just done too much for me. It's really a small thing. If he's asking me to give up my life, He gave his son for me. what what more? what more could he possibly do for me? It's that understanding of what God has done for us that enables us to see that what He requires of us is actually light and easy. It is in fact small. And so. God moves then in verses 6 through 8 to actually say what, is it, what it is, in fact, that he has required. And this is really the crux of it. You know, I, I do all these things for you, God, and yet you don't seem to, to respond. That seems to be the situation that Mike is speaking into, that the, the people of God were thinking, you know, we do so much for you, Lord, and you don't seem to hear us. You don't seem to respond when we when we worship you. And so God says what it is that he has, in fact, required of his people. Now, this is done uh, uh, very, very poetically. It's very, very beautiful. Um, first, negatively, what God has not required in verses 6 and 7, and then what he has required in verse 8. So, Micah begins to pose this as a question. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? What is it that he's actually required? What, What, what can I do to be accepted in his sight? And then from there... There is a series of things that he lists out and they get progressively, um, more extreme. They begin with just the standard things and then they get to a point where it's, it's really, uh, very, very extreme. And then the, the thinking is, you know, is it, is it that we have to do all of these things for God to simply accept us and, and, and for us to be accounted righteous in his sight? Has he really required all of these things from us? And so he begins with the burnt offering. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? These were just the standard sacrifices that would have been required for atonement. Then it becomes a bit more extreme at the beginning in verse 7. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? And not just one burnt offering now, but now it's becoming a bit more. Thousands of rams, you know, that's the sacrifice of kings, right? The sacri- something, it, it's the kinds of things that Solomon would have sacrificed when the temple was dedicated or 10,000 rivers of oil, even more, not just, um, not just thousands of rams, but now 10,000s of not just a measure of oil, but even rivers of oil. Is that what God will be pleased with? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my people? Here's the climax, the most extreme. Does, does God really require so much that I have to give up, even my own children for him, for him to accept me? Now, in all of these things, as Micah begins to get more and more extreme, as we're trying to answer the question, what is it that God requires of His people? As he does this, we have to ask, did God accept those sorts of things from the people? Did He accept their worship? And we have to say, obviously, He He didn't. That's the reason for the complaints against God, and what God is answering as He goes goes into this courtroom this courtroom situation with His people. Now, if he did not accept these things, we have to ask why. Why did God not accept all of these things? His burnt offerings or even more, these thousands of rams or even more, the giving up of the firstborn for for the transgressions of the people. Now, there are at least two reasons why God would not have accepted the people's sacrifices. The first is that the worship of the people of God in this time was not mixed with love. It was not mixed with true love for God. They maybe outwardly were performing the sacrifices that they needed to do, but inwardly their hearts were far from the Lord. Remember, Isaiah was a contemporary of Micah. They lived at the same time. They had um, ministry to the same area. They both prophesied to the southern kingdom in the 8th-7th century uh, BC. Micah, uh, Isaiah describes a situation in Isaiah 1 of the reasons why God does not accept the worship of his people. He says, I hate iniquity with the burnt offering. He says look, look all of your solemn assemblies they are a burden to me. I don't like them. You know would you know let them let them all be stopped. When you raise your hands to me in prayer, don't think that I'm listening to you. And why is that? Because they had mixed sin with worship. They thought if I outwardly do the things that God requires and yet inwardly keep on sinning, God's still going to accept me. Their worship was not mixed with love. This is why Hosea and Hosea six six says, when it's quoted a couple of times by our Lord, says, "I desire mercy and not sacrifice." Did God desire sacrifice? In some sense, yes, He required it of the people of God. They needed to do the, to, to do their sacrifices in the Old Testament, and then He says, "I desire mercy, not sacrifice." If you bring a sacrifice to me, and it's not because it's rooted in love for me then understand that your sacrifice means nothing and I don't desire it. What I desire is mercy. What I desire is loving kindness. What I desire is a heart of love. And out of that, in Old Testament worship, flowed the sacrifices. And if, if it doesn't come in that order, it's not pleasing to God. This is Think of even what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, the famous passage on love. If I have everything if I have every gift, if I give up all that I have, even give up my body to be burned and have not love, I am nothing. And all of my acts are nothing. The worship of God must be mixed with love. But there's a second reason why God would not have accepted these things. And that's because part of these things were not actually commanded in worship. Particularly the last one, shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my womb for the sin of my soul? Did God ever require child sacrifice for the sake of atonement being made for the people of God in the Old Testament? No. Quite clearly, very many times in the prophets, that is condemned as an absolute abomination. Now, those who did those things in the Old Testament sincerely thought that their actions showed a great devotion to God. And think about how this would be. This would have been a normal practice of the other cultures around Israel. Uh, We have, for instance, we know that from the worship of Moloch in the Old Testament, that it was very regular that there would be a child sacrifice that would accompany the worship of Moloch. And so all the people around them are, are showing their devotion to their God and saying, look, we love our God so much, our God so much that we are willing to give even our children for them. And they sincerely thought that that was a part of worship to God. And they would ask, you, you could see the, how the how the pressure would be would come upon the church and the Old Testament. Well, don't you love your God enough to give up your son? Wouldn't a son be a, a greater sacrifice than simply a, a simple burnt offering or an animal? And people think that they're giving a greater devotion to God by offering something more extreme when in reality their actions are an abomination to God an abomination to God that he hates and he says that he's never commanded it and what's what's the principle that we can draw from that we're not tempted in the same ways to offer child to offer children for the to pagan gods but the principle is that whatever is not commanded in the scriptures as a good work cannot be done as a good work. If we want to know what God accepts as a good work, we must search the scriptures to know what God himself has commanded and what he has required. There are many who, out of a false zeal for God, what they think is a true zeal, will do many things that apparently show great devotion, and yet they are hated by God. Think of what Jesus even warns the disciples You know, there is coming a day, they'll persecute you, they'll throw you out of the synagogues, and many people will think that they are offering a service to God when they persecute you. They actually believe they'll be serving God when they do this, and yet they won't be. And even in our own day, these sorts of things happen. Think of, for instance, suicide bombers in, uh, in Islam. They truly believe that they are going to receive a greater reward from God. For their actions, and yet it is an abomination to God, because it's not something commanded in the Word. Or perhaps there are we could say even other ways in which we have we feel pressure to, to change the definition of what a good work would be. That would be uh, a little closer to home for us. For for instance, in the LGBT and and you know whatever other letters there are, and that sort of thing. It's the, it's the same sort of thing, especially as it comes into the church you have people saying you know that there will be this or that that will even be in heaven related to these sorts of things and yet it's something that God has clearly spoken against in his word all of these things come from pressure from the outside where we are tempted to offer to God things which are not commanded in the word this is what our even our own confession teaches on good works in Westminster Confession of Faith chapter 16 it was something that what that was um meant to be something against the Roman Catholic Church, which was which was teaching that people could do works which the which the Church had commanded rather than what could be found in the Word. And they said that and in that in that section, 161, it says that the only things which are good works are those which are commanded by God in the Scriptures. And so when we look then in the context here, what has God required? Has he required something so extreme Like the pagan gods around them require even their children to be killed for the sake of the worship of these gods. Has God required these sorts of things of you? God says, listen, I've done all this for you. Have I then required all these things of you? He says, no, none of these things are not even acceptable to God. They're an abomination to him. Those are things which have not been required. But what is it then that God has required? This is where we get the very famous verse that you're probably very familiar with. Micah chapter 6 verse 8. He has shown you, or in the original, he has told you, O oh man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? What is it that God has required? He has told you. He's He's opened his mouth and spoken. You're not in the dark. The good, the things which are good works are commanded of you. What God wants is simple obedience to those things. In response for, for all the good things which he has done for you, simply do these non-burdensome commands which I have given to you for your good. Simply follow me. And then this is summarized in the, the three things that follow. To do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with, with your God. The first two we can take as a summary of the second table of the law. Now remember when I say second table of the law, I'm talking about the Ten Commandments, the, the law that was given to Moses, the uh, Commandments 5 through 10, all of the, the commands that had to do with loving others. This is what uh, is being referred to here, taken in a, in a summary form. What does God require of you? to do justly, to act in accordance with equity towards other people. Not to call good evil or evil good, but simply act in a way that's equitable to others, to all those that you come into contact with, and to love mercy, to act in a a way that displays love for others, true compassion and caring for them. This word is is often translated as covenant faithfulness or loving kindness, simply act towards others out of love is that is that a, a burdensome command that god has given to us is this is this something that goes beyond what he has a right to require of us well surely not and then and then he finishes up with a summary of the first table our duties towards god and to walk humbly with your god simply to walk with me obey the things that i have given you to to do Walk with me in communion with me. Now, the emphasis here is upon the manner in which we walk. How are we to walk? It's our heart before God must be humble. That's that's the thing that's being emphasized. It's not to be lifted up towards God. We're to know our place, our lowly place in his presence, as we look up and see his great and exalted glory. But this word that's translated humbly has another sense to it as well. It has to do with the wisdom of receiving instruction as well. So it's not just humility in general, but it's a, a humility particularly related to the humility that's required to receive instruction well from another that we might obey and live wisely. And this is what God is, is saying. Simply receive humbly from me all that I have said to you and walk in communion with me this is all that i have required of you walk with me even as adam did in the garden even as enoch did and noah did walk simply walk with me and be in communion with me this is the very purpose of our existence that we would have fellowship with the triune god through his, through the son of god the lord jesus christ in our union with him and this is all that he requires of us When we put both sides before impartial witnesses, impartial judges, what will be the result? God has given his son for you, and he requires of you loving others and sincerely following him and having fellowship with him. Is it a burden? Is there any way in which we can be justified in complaining against him? It's not for us to complain against God when he brings difficult things into our lives. It's for us to remember in those situations that the one who does this has already proved by his actions that he loves us. And there's nothing that he could ask of us. That we could not simply say with all of the martyrs of every age, Lord, it's really nothing. It's nothing in light of what you have done for me. I will bless your name always. And if my Lord asks me to pick up my cross and follow him, I will say, Lord, it is my honor and my pleasure to do so. May God grant us the grace to have this perspective always and so honor him in all that we do. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how we do confess that in your presence there is fullness of joy. What a privilege it is that through your Son, we can have access to you and even communion with you. And Lord, how thrilled we are that once a week you meet with us in this special way in the public worship, and we get to have true communion with the triune God through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, we are beyond blessed in your presence. How, Lord, even as we heard in the, in the call to worship, how blessed we are who stand in your house and continually praise your name. O oh, Lord, give us the grace to walk humbly with you all the days of our lives. Give us, Lord, the grace to have an eternal perspective on all that happens, and to be willing, Lord, to give up everything, if, if you would call us to it, and even to consider it even a small thing in light of what you have done for us. Lord, you know our weakness, you know our frailty, you know that very often we know what we should do, we know the perspective we should have, and yet, Lord, our mind is focused on the things of this earth. Lord, forgive us, we ask, have mercy upon us and grant us grace that we would make some progress and that there would be none that would be able to overcome us, but that we would overcome all by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony. We ask it in the name of your Son, Jesus Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about our church, you can visit us at newcovopcssf.com. That's N-E-W-C-O-V-O-P-C-S-S-F dot com. If you'd like to worship with us on Sunday, our service times are 1030 a.m. and 5 o'clock p.m.